May 5, 1980, the SAS stormed the Iranian embassy in London, ending a six-day siege. When I got there, there was 25 hostages being held by six armed gunmen. They executed a guy called Lavasani, threw him outside. That was proof of murder. Carry an MP5 machine gun, backup weapon was a 9mm Browning, flashbang grenades, shotguns, yeah. Stand to, stand down, that means you get ready, go, go, go. What do you mean by it's an inside job? Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host Dodge and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. On this podcast I speak to proper characters of all lived eventful lives. Do us a favour and hit that follow button and be sure to check us out on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook and TikTok at Dodge Woodall, where we've now had over 100 million views. Rusty Furman is a top SAS legend known for his crucial involvement in the 1980 Iranian Embassy Siege. We talk through the mission of saving the hostages and taking down the six armed men. Rusty recalls the meticulous planning and pressure surrounding the siege and describes what it was like to be part of it. This is the eventful life of Mr. Rusty Furman. Rusty, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for the invite. Very much looking forward to this one. Yep. Let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you end up spending 15 years in the SAS? Oh, great question. Uh, I'm from Carlisle originally. Um, I was forced into the army at age 15, basically. Uh, I didn't want to go in the army. I was a bit of a, a Rolling Stones fan at the time. Um, but there I was, 15, marched down to the station. Off I went, long-haired, down to Bramcote, um, which is in Dunedin in Warwickshire. Junior Leaders Regiment, Royal Artillery. I don't know how I got there, but that was the start of it all, really. So... From there, a couple of years in boy service, left boy service in 67, went into man service at 17-year-old, um, to a northern regiment, actually, 4-9 Field Regiment Royal Artillery, which, if I could have bought myself out while I was in junior leaders, it was going to cost me £50 to buy myself out in the army. Is that right? You could buy yourself out the yeah, army? Yeah, but I couldn't get £50 in them days, which yeah, is a lot, lot of money. Yeah. So, yeah, £50 would have got me out and I would have gone after my first three months, I can tell you that. However, I couldn't get it. Spent two years there. Went into, as I say, man service. Spent three and a half, four years there. All I did really with them was play football um, because in those days, that's what it was about. Yeah. And I always wanted to be a footballer. You're a half-decent footballer? Sorry? Were you a half-decent footballer? Um, I represented the British Army eventually, which is as high as you get in semi-professional football. Oh, quality. Yeah, so I represented the British Army. Yeah. Um, and then from there, went to the commandos, 2-9 commando, got my green berry. Uh, spent three and a half years there. And then you said, how did I spend f uh, 15 years in the SAS? Went there in 77, past selection. Um, I went into B squadron uh, at the end of 77 and came out in 1992. Wow. So you were you passed to become get into the SAS in 1977? Yeah, I did summer selection in 1977. And what was it like for you, the whole selection process to get into the SAS back then? Um, well, I've always been physically fit, and that's one of the main attributes you need to have, always been fit. Um, so it was hard work, um, but I spent a couple of years on commando training wing, which meant I was out running and teaching little commandos to become big commandos, if you like, get the green berry. So I was always out running, keeping fit, 
um, and decided for selection. So it was a six-month process. I knew that. But I thought if I'm, if I didn't do it at 27, I'd probably never have done it um, at all. So I thought, let's go for it. Mm. And that's exactly what I did. Um, it was a really hot summer. Um, very hard to find water up on the mountains, running around. But that's where it all started for me. And I spent the six months doing what I should do while others were falling by the wayside every day, more or less, because it is a hard selection, recognized probably as the hardest in the world. Mm. And that's not just by me. I've just come back from San Diego with the SWAT team. And they know and have much respect for SAS. Wow, hold on a minute. You just come back from San Diego. Yeah. What were you doing out there with the SWAT team in America? I've been doing a guest speaking out there. For, I was over there for six days. Um, it looked after us very well. It's a big convention once a year. Um, and that followed on from the, the convention I did for the uh, Texas SWAT team back in April. I was out there for another seven days um, doing exactly the same thing. So it looks like you know, I've moved over to the States because they've invited me back again already. Fantastic. Good for you. Do you like going up, flying back over there and feeling special and being uh, paid to do it? Um, it's not about being special. It's it's probably about being recognised. Mm. It's taken a while. You know, I've done quite a lot in the circuit in, in the UK, but they recognise and they want my story. Yeah, They know I've got the story, and they've got young up-and-coming SWAT team members, police team members. It was over a thousand, maybe fourteen hundred people at that convention. Really? Yeah. And you got up and spoke. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, nearly, I did podcast over there for them. Um, so it was well looked after, and I worked. I didn't go over there for a swan. Yeah. Uh, we had time off, uh, but I can say this: that you know, the way they look after their police officers and their SWAT team, you know, and I look at the UK side of it and I'm just utterly devastated. Really? Total difference. Give, total me, an, give me an example of the difference of them looking after you, looking after them, them out in America versus out in the UK. Yeah, well, if you look at the, you know, uh, the UK police, uh, I know we don't have a SWAT team, but they, they're very much um, programmed to go along with what's happening. You know, if they're told to do something, they go and do it. Yeah. You know, if they want to dance in the street with people dressed in funny colours, they go and dance in the street. The Americans get on with their job. Yeah. And I've got nothing but total respect from what I've seen. You know, if we could follow that example, we probably wouldn't have half the problems we've got today. They don't mess about. Mm. They know what they're doing. They're capable and they have respect for others. That is not the case in the UK, in my opinion. Yeah. What is your opinion on the police in the UK as we sit today? <laughs> I better be careful here. I might get lifted when I get out of here. <laughs> but um, no, for me, it's rock bottom, I'm afraid. I've come through an awful lot in my time, with my age. I've seen the police from years ago to what it is now. Um, and, and the fact is, they're on demand. Um, you know, there's all this different ethnics and so going on. It, it's totally different now than from what I remember. Yeah. But the good news is, it's different and got worse rather yeah. than different and got better. Mm. That's my opinion. Yeah, agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Even in the 80s and 90s, you wouldn't say anything to a copper. 
you'd have the fear. No, you wouldn't. Now I see I see kids on the street mouthing off at policemen and da da da. da thinking, my God. Yeah, just go and have a dance with them. Yeah, you know, they're quite happy with that. You can see that in London. Yeah. Every every march, if you like, you know, they pick the sides they want to be on, and nothing's going to change that. Mm. You know, we, we were down there not long ago for remembrance. You know, when I remember remembrance of years ago, you could go there and do what you wanted to do. Mm. Now you're marshaled and told what to do. Mm. Well, that's not remembrance for me. I don't want to remember it for that. I want to remember it for the people that have um, died fighting for this country mm. over the years. Mm. Not being hustled into a corner by some coppers said, you've got to stand there. You, can, you know, not for me. That yeah. isn't me. Yeah. How do you see how the police system can change? Because it comes down to money, right? <clears throat> Everything does. Yeah, which is really sad. Yeah. And that's why I think the East is flying that way and the West seems to be coming down this way due to finances. How could you, If money wasn't an option, what would you do with the police service? Well, you'd, you'd at least have them trained and more of them. You know, if they're undermanned, let's be honest, there's a march every week now in London, isn't there, taking police from all over the place. You know, different areas have to come and support and all the rest of it. You mentioned money. Well, why not put some money into the police funding and stop giving it away to the illegal immigrants? Yeah. Okay? Let's get rid of them, first of all. Let's get our soldiers off the streets and into accommodation. Yeah. Not behind a bunch of ragtag and bobtails. You know, Get rid of them. Send them back. Mm. All the talk in the world by Rishi Sunak and everybody else about what they're going to do, what they can do. They're doing nothing. Mm. Okay, for me, it's just a joke. Mm. The government's a joke, in my opinion. Yeah. So they need to get their act together, get it down the line, and get it out to some people who need it. Mm. And let's start looking after our own first, secure our borders, and not have all these people coming in from everywhere in the world. Yeah. And they've got no idea of their background, but they're quite happy to give them a house, give them a hotel, give them money, and then say sod it to the rest. Yeah, and our yeah, veterans, our veterans are homeless. Yeah, yeah, the people who fought for the country. What's hard about that? Yeah. Have you got a voice? Has anyone like you're a major player? You're a big. You're a big face <coughs> in this world of SAS and very well respected in the UK. And I've had Phil Kempion on, and I've had Des Powell on SAS and other SBS special forces on. Is there a voice? Do you have a voice in the UK? You can make something happen and make some change here. Well, anybody, I've got a bit of a voice and I've got a following as to other people yeah. in different areas. But to get the combined voice, it's going to be very hard to do because there's some people who you want to help support it are probably happy to just go along mm. and tread, you know, and just do nothing apart from talk about it. Mm. It needs funding. Who's going to fund it? You know, it's got, you know, you've seen these these parties out there, you know, um, we're fed up of them. Most yeah. people are fed up of them. Yeah. I've had emails lately, why don't you um, join the sort of reform party and, and all that type of stuff? Well, I've thought about it and it still needs, In it's in the early days, what we need, and it's not going to happen. They know this. You need a quick fix. Yeah. And there is no quick fix, uh, fix available. Mm. 
because you know these are so wrapped up in themselves you know you see it every day on tv with prime ministers question time yeah. and stuff you know what what we need is another maggie thatcher mm. that won't please yeah. everybody yeah i'm not here to please i'm here to give you my opinions mm. and that's it tell me tell me and tell the listeners and watchers here what was maggie thatcher like and her reign in the 80s what was it like being under maggie thatcher then <laughs> well as our Prime Minister. <laughs> As Prime Minister, yeah. Well, you've got to remember, when there was decisions to be made, okay, I was in the military, right? When you're in the military, you do as you're told, okay? If you don't do as you're told, you get court-martialed. Simple as that. However, when I was in the military then, let's go back to the Iran embassy siege. When those decisions had to be made, should we rescue the hostages, should we talk... You know, she made the decisions. She made the decisions about the Falklands putting a task force together. Those are decisions which changed, you know, changed the UK. Yeah. But now, who have you got there? Bumbling Boris, he's been and gone. Rishi Sunak is there now. They're, they're not a patch. They're, they just aren't a patch on what Maggie Thatcher was like yeah. as a PM. I've met her. I've spoken mm. to her. I've done demonstrations for my um, for the PM. You know, she came and seen us after the siege was finished back mm. in 1980. You know, these are the people that I know and respect. And what I see now, especially on TV, there's loads of coverage nowadays. But, you know, I wouldn't follow any of them, yeah. not even out of curiosity. Yeah. How about that? That should sum it up. Mm. Is there one person in mind who you think can take the lead of the country? There's a number of people in mind that... that can't do any worse and can only do better, you know, if they wanted to. They've tried and gone so far and stopped. You know, there are a number of people, you know, I like the way Nigel Farage operates, um, but to put somebody right out the front there and say, because of the, from the, from the, um, from the, the governments we've got, I, I, I don't see anybody. I don't see anybody there at all that I'd want to follow. Yeah, That's the sad part about That's it. That's really sad, isn't it? It is sad yeah. because it's the UK, United Kingdom, where I was born. Mm. And I'm looking now around. There's nobody. Yeah. Nobody. Rolling back, 1977, you went into the SAS. Tell me about in 1980, the Iranian siege that you were a part of. Um. Well, it was... My turn to be on the counter-terrorist team in the SAS. It was B Squadron's turn. Um, so we, we went on that for six months. Then you rotate through the different squadrons in the regiment. Um, a couple of weeks after we'd taken over, the six-armed terrorists, Saddam Hussein backed from Iraq, came across um, to make their plea of what was happening and the plight um, of the Iraqi um, that were being captured in Iran. This is what it was all about, uh, Arabistan. So so just to break that down, Iraqis were captured in Iran over there. No. We had the Iranian embassy here in Kensington, London. Yeah. And then, then what happened with the people who were held hostages in the Iranian embassy? Oh, um, I was going to skip forward mm. to that. But yeah, um, the... the when I got there, there was 25 hostages being held by six armed gunmen. Mm. 
Wow. Right, that was on the 30th of April, 1980. They were making demands using the hostages, okay? So the six gunmen were making demands to the government yeah. of what they wanted. What did they want? They came into the country, first of all, to um, get the world to recognize the plight of what was happening. Basically, Iraqis were going across the border into Iran to yeah. the southwest corner of I Iran, yeah. which is Arabistan. Oil rich, yes. The Savak, which are the Iran Iranian um, secret police, used to go down, used to capture them, take them back to Tehran, torture some, kill some, let some go to tell the story back to Iraq. Wow. So that they wanted worldwide. Yeah, okay. That happened. They wanted no the question. publicity. They wanted yeah, it, and okay. that happened. Yeah. So that was on the first couple of days. Then they wanted to negotiate their own way out of the UK, back to where they came from. That was never going to be allowed. Yeah. And it was a police operation, don't forget, supported by the SAS. Right. It was metropolitan police operation supported by us if something went wrong. No yeah. proof of murder, lots of negotiations, uh, backwards and forwards. That was over the six days until... So this went on for six days? It went on for six days. But you were trained. How long were you trained for something like this to pop up? Um, Quite... Quite, quite a few times, yeah. It, the, the length is immaterial. Yeah. It's your planning and preparation to what you're going to do. The longer you can draw it out, yeah. the better for you because you can plan and prepare and get more intelligence as you go along. Right, okay. Make a plan. You've got the plan. This was happening with us. The police were dealing with the negotiations and stuff. There was nobody murdered on UK soil. So at the moment, it's negotiations that okay. are going on. We were working in the background, three different plans. What if, what if, what if? So we had three different plans, not one plan. And eventually, to skip forward to the last day, which was the 5th of May. The I, just want, I just want to hold that bit there. Yeah. In those six days before we skip forward, where are you sitting? Where are you sleeping? Where are you, where are you all? What's going on in your world? Well, initially... We were down at Regent's Park Barracks. Yep. It was too far, four and a half miles in London traffic. If yep. there was an incident, forget it. Yep. We then moved next door with the police taking us next door in small packets of guys with handbags. Um, and that took place over two days. Handbags? Two, ha hand baggage. Oh, hand baggage. Okay. Weapons. Yep. And personal, yeah, because we're in civilian clothes at this stage. Okay. Carrying what you were going to get changed into. So they dropped us off around the back covertly, made our way into next door to where the terrorists were, the neighbors from hell. Yeah. Right? That's where we were, <laughs> the neighbors from yeah. hell. So we moved into the 1415 Princess Gate, which was the Royal College of General Practitioners, referred to in the book as yeah. the Doc's House, yeah. for obvious reasons. Yeah. Right? So we were there, 50 of us next door and they didn't know right right so they were in number 16 princess gate iranian embassy we were in 1415 princess gate same level level one balcony to balcony and they didn't know right that's where we did a lot of the training from we then um skipped backwards and forwards to regent's park um where we did 
mock-ups, which you couldn't do next door. But we always had one team on standby, red and blue team. I was blue team, yep. part of blue team. The other team was red team. And how many in your blue team? Um, at the time, 20, it was 70 odd involved in the operation total. Between the red and blue team that actually went into the building, we'll say there were 16 of each. Yeah. There's only 32 guys actually entered the building. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, um, at, at the very end for, to um, get the resolution, if you like. So there we were, dressed up. You could then get a lift back to Regent's Park to do a bit of training, a bit of this, that, and the other. You couldn't do any live shooting because there was no way to do it, but that didn't matter. So we had one team there, and eventually, when as the days drew in, we had two teams together with the final plan in place, just in case. And then, lo and behold, they executed a guy called Lavasani, tied him to the stairs, shot him three times. This is the terrorist. Yeah. Lavasani was only a young lad. He was the press attaché for the Iranian embassy. Executed him. And as you see by the footage of the TV news reports, threw him outside on the steps of um, uh, the Iranian embassy. Yeah. That was proof of murder. As soon as that happened, within minutes, the Prime Minister, Mr. Thatcher, ordered um, the control of the operation to be handed to the military, us, and then it was up to us to get the resolution to this sorted. The police then were supporting us in the operation. So, so it flipped over, did it? Okay. Over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden, it's the SAS. And that's exactly what happened. After that, it took us 16 minutes, two teams, to get into position, 56 rooms on six levels in the Iranian embassy itself. Okay. Um, as I say, there was 32 guys mm. entered on the... Go, 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 which is the name yeah. of my book. Yeah. And it took 11 minutes from go, go, go to clear him 56 rooms on six levels, um, rescuing 19 ho hostages, killing five terrorists, and um, arresting the surviving terrorists, bringing them out the building, out to the back where the big green space is at the back of the building, it took us 16 minutes to clear that, and inside the building, it was already ablaze. Wow. So, and then identifying your own team, yeah. everybody accounted for, and that took 11 minutes. Wow. That's a quick operation, isn't it? It was. <laughs> what were you, so for the viewers here, what were you wearing? What were you carrying? Were you were you camoed up? Were you balaclavered up? What was? No, it was all black kit. Yeah. But it was all black kit that burnt. So, and the place was on fire. So it was basically uh, rubber boots in those days, um, normal um, non-fireproof coveralls, um, rubber gloves, rubber respirator, carrying MP5 machine gun, backup weapon was a nine millimeter Browning, um, magazines with ammunition in, um, flashbang grenades that had a mixture of gas and bang, bang, bang. Yeah all that type of stuff, and frame charges to put against doors and blow them in. Shotguns, yeah. All that type of stuff is what you'd have expected, but actually, 
<laughs> when, when I think about it, you you wouldn't want to be seen dead in that stuff these no. days. When I see what the what saw what the Americans had to wear when we just done that trip over there, yeah. so they love the story because I can relate it to them and show them what they've got, show them what we had, and this is where they wanted me. Yeah, I went through it a number of times with them, and they just can't believe what what happened and how quick it was. Um. But they're really interested in the story, and that's how we approached it, and that's how we dealt with it back in 1980. Wow. The best of what we had. Yeah. But you wouldn't wear it today. You wouldn't put, you wouldn't put it on a scarecrow. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't scare anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, that's what we had. Wow. Tell me what was going through your head with those six days, because you didn't know it was going to be six days. You're going day by day by day. You didn't want to be away from the mission I'm guessing you'd wanted to be next door with the go, go, go from Maggie Thatcher. And on that note, massive respect for Maggie Thatcher for giving the go ahead. No, no question. Yeah. You know, there, there was no fumbling. Yeah. No, you know, th that was the days of the first Cobra meeting ever back in 1980. That was done, guess where? The Royal School of Needlework. Yeah, that was a Cobra meeting. The first emergency meeting ever, Cobra. And it was all done. As soon as that body came out, within minutes, we had the, the, the um, get into position um, prior to the assault. And the whole mission was only to rescue the hostages. Yeah. Okay, rescue the hostages. That was it. How you do that is what you see, you deal with. Yeah. But the mission at the end it just rescued the hostages. Yeah. Didn't say kill the gunmen. The mere fact that they were armed and heavily armed, uh, with grenades and weapons, yeah. Um, you're going to meet that sort of resistance. You deal with it. But it took 11 minutes. What time of the day were you given the go-ahead? Um, about five past seven at night. Five past seven at night. That was on the bank holiday Monday. And there was a big snooker world final snooker match that day and i think they turned off the snooker and put this on live on bbc for the whole nation to see yeah it was um alex higgins was playing cliff thorburn right. um in the final of the embassy world championships uh, i'm in touch with cliff thorburn by the way um he still talks about it obviously yeah. <laughs> um unfortunately alex isn't with us anymore yeah. but um yeah cliff i've spoke to him a, a few times and he tells the story of how one minute they're, they're finals on TV, the next minute our guys are running and going to rescue hostages. Yeah. So. Tell me, talk me through your day, that day leading up to the moment where you actually made the decision. And <laughs> where were you? What were you doing? What were you thinking? And what was your position when they went go, go, go? What was your involvement in that? Yeah, it's um, quite simple, actually. The, the day itself, the 5th of May, funny enough, I should have been playing in a cup final that day, um, football cup final over at Kidderminster. Yeah. So I didn't ever know if I was going to make it because we were there six days before. Yeah. But um, suffice to say, that didn't happen. So um, in the morning, we were still preparing as we did um, each day, but we had two teams together Um in the um, holding area, which is next door, as I've said. So everybody was going about their normal, um, you know, f 
just in case. I've done lots of training, lots of rehearsals, lots of preparation, planning. And now the guys are really ready, you know, six days, you know, this something. Yeah. And th that's what happened throughout the day. And there was shooting earlier on that day, which put you on a different alert, but there was no proof of murder. Okay. So it could have been somebody firing into the... In, in, oh, I see. Eggs. So you you heard gun noises, but because you didn't prove the murder, you couldn't pull the trigger to go right. We're on. No, well, okay. We could have done. Yeah, we could have done, but proof of murder was really the let's say the icing on the cake. Yeah. The body was there. Yeah. Unfortunately for, for Lavasani. How old was Lavasani roughly? I'm not sure. Probably mid to late thirties. Okay. It's only yeah. maybe not even that old. Okay. Let's say thirty-ish, yeah. um, but he was a young lad. And he stuck his chest out against, you know, what was happening. A big Ayatollah supporter, you know, all that type of stuff. Um, found that out later, actually. But as the day progressed, it was another day. Negotiations, stand to, stand down. That means you get ready, stand down, yeah. you know. I bet you were chomping in the bit just to get on with it when you, well, you led. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it is. You, you want something... You know, you're there, you're ready, your coil springs, right? Yeah. Ready, what's going to happen? When it actually happened and we got the go, 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 got the go, 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 um, it was like, and that's when, you know, into position. And then everybody had their own jobs um, over the six floors um, to do, come through the, the top room, at the balcony at the back, which was on fire, around the front on the balcony. My job was my team at the back door. I had six of us and four following. Um, they were going to go in behind us and go down into the basement area, clear the basement. So everybody had their jobs to do, um, but you couldn't hear each other because of the gunfire. Once it started, it was gunfire, flashbangs making going off. The big explosion at the beginning, um, people screaming, falling on the stairs where the glass had come through the windows, people being sick because of the gas. And I'm talking about hostages now. Yeah. Our guys had respirators on. And it sounded like mayhem inside over the 11 minutes, although the 11 minutes went very quickly. Mm. Um, so that was that, you know, there was um, terrorists taken care of on the second floor, first floor, and on the ground floor by myself um, on the final assault when, in fact, the guy, um, Faisal, uh, he's a guy that came towards me in amongst all the mayhem, which I grabbed and saw the grenade and then fired two bursts of, M um, of MP5 at him. He fell to the floor, to the bottom of the stairs. So that happened. Um, and he was a threat. He had a grenade. Um, he was trying to get out the building, looked like it, but the guys at the top of the stairs were pointing and shouting. I can't even pretend that I heard what they were saying, but it was, you know, you train in that environment yeah. because you couldn't hear them, respirators, all the noise in the background. But that's why I grabbed him and I identified him from the pictures we had earlier of the terrorists eventually we got all six pictures mainly from passports that were left 
in a bedsit in Earl's Court in London. Wow. So, and then the photo, the grenade all clicked in and then I fired the two bursts of MP5 at him. And basically after that, there's still the hostages coming out, going out the back, being shuffled out the back by the teams. And at the end of the day, at the 11 minutes, it was on fire as well. You know, it did a lot of damage inside there. Um, I think the I think the insurance ran out in the building a few days before we entered. Is that right? So it, it laid it laid dormant after the siege <laughs> for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, so that's what happened, and then um, when everybody was accounted for, we went back to Regent's Park. All of us. Um, I was the last guy out of the building because I was on the ground floor. All the guys at the top had all come out. And it left me and my team there to follow them out. And then back to Regent's Park once we got changed. Forensics took our weapons off us for, and said they'd be back in a day or two, um, all labelled up, you know, who fired what and so on. And then Maggie Thatcher, Dennis Whitelaw, Home Secretary. Uh, sorry, Dennis Thatcher, William Whitelaw, the Home Secretary. They all came to Regent's Park, uh, Park Barracks to say thanks. Um, crying yeah. <laughs> and then um basically um in our own time small groups of vehicles two or three at a time which were left at regions park made our way back to hereford where we stopped and i still can't find that place again i've tried to find it <laughs> it was a um a little red a little burger bar on the side we stopped there a couple of cups of tea had a bit of chat about what gone on beef burger about midnight just after something like that um and then back to hereford and put everything away so it never happened and then the following day was a debrief um a couple of days off because we didn't have any weapons wow. they'd taken them for forensics how did you how did it make you feel that all the lads went in done a job out snuck off out the back gone no one knows who's who um well, that's how it should be done really yeah um, you know, waiting for a pat on the back. Um, not at all. Um, but it was nice that it was, um, it, when you think back on it now, it's been talked about by a lot of people. Even nowadays, uh, people are so interested in it mm. because it was the first time anything had been televised, you know, like that, interrupted the snooker. Yeah. How many people saw that? Tens of watching millions, the snooker. yeah. Um, so when we got back, funny enough, the time where we spent in the regiment after that, um, it wasn't a big conversation piece because there was other stuff going on. Um, people got more interested again uh, as a time when we were out of the regiment and they wanted to make a film, they wanted to do this one. So things changed that way yeah. um, with the documentaries. You know, they're all on there. Mm. Um, so we took part in that type of stuff, you know, but it's the same. What you get today is the same story as you got all those years ago. Yeah. So there's, you know, even if you wanted to try and big it up, you can't. It's yeah. not worth it. It's there. Yeah. That's what happened. We're proud to be part of it, you know, um, and it did end up being a big deal mm. and probably, you know, the most um, talked about siege. 
um, that went, it wasn't textbook, yeah. I'm not even going to pretend it was. Things went wrong in that building, you know. What went wrong? Um, the, the the charges that were put, my, the charge I had to blow the window and I couldn't because of the balcony above was on fire and the guys were on it. Um, it's it serious flames coming out, so I didn't had to make a decision to discard that and go through a window, you know. So, um, you know, the, the guy that got hung up on the ropes at the back, burning, he got third degree burns before he even got off the ropes the, on, on the, the second there, floor. There was a guy hanging. Yeah, it's all in. It's all in the book. What, it's all what, the, tell me about that bit there. This isn't the guy who got shot. There's another guy who was no, hanging on the second floor yeah. balcony at the rear. Um, the abseil down from the roof, two lots of four abseilers. One of them got stuck on his robe as the flames were coming out through the window. Oh. And you can see that quite clearly. Um, so he got burns, second degree burns on his legs. They chopped him down and he carried on with the, with, with the, the, the mission to rescue the hostages. Um, the, the charges that went in, you know, we had... Um, there was a few things that the guys put right, which weren't in the plan yeah. to make it work. And I always say that the guys I worked with and proud to have worked with them are very adaptable and flexible. Yeah. The plan is the plan, but never, yeah. <laughs> never ever think the plan is going to be infallible. Yeah. There's always something nine times out of 10 goes wrong. Yeah. It's the guys and the quality of the guys around you that make it work. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened on that day. Mm. Going back there a little bit further, back again here, you said five terrorists were shot. Who's the one that got away? Um, Fawzi Nedjad. Is he still alive today? Yeah. Where is he? He's in London. <laughs> he's in London? Yeah, he's, he, he, went, he went to jail. He got 28 days, uh, 28 years in jail. And did how much of that? Half? He did 28 years. He did 28 years, okay. Yeah, but okay. when he came out... They gave him a house, a flat in London. You're joking okay, me. And benefits. That's our country. My God. Yeah. And he's still alive today in London? Yeah, do you want his address? Have you got it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you have. <laughs> but seriously. Um, How mad is that? Well, oh, uh, hold on a minute. I just want to. What year did he come out then? If he went in 1980s, come out in what, 2008? Eight. 2009, 2000, roughly two, around 2008, there. 2008, he did 28 years. And then, so he's come out, Yeah, they've given him a house. A flat. A flat. And benefits. And monthly money going into his account. Yeah. How? That's, what, that's England uh, for you. That's how? That's Great Britain for you. Yeah, but how? Why? Surely someone at top level looking golden. I mean, that's the, well, Maggie yeah. Thatcher wasn't there then. Who was there then? <laughs> um, 28 years later, um... Can't even think. David Cameron, maybe. Maybe someone. Okay, that's that's not right. No, it's sad. Yeah, that is really sad. You know, it's sad. But how for did all he, the how listeners, did, hmm. it, you know, does that not tell you a story? Yeah. You know, um, it does tell you a story, and it, it's getting worse. Yeah, I hear you. How did he get away without getting shot? Never really proven that I know of, but they reckon that there were some female hostages inside. Um, he was a another young-looking lad, and 
You've heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Mm, no, what's yeah. that? It's, you know, we'll help you. Oh, okay. That type of thing. They call it Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. Um, did they put maybe a jumper over him? Or oh, I see. Tried to get him out. So he's, so oh, okay. he did. He got out. Uh, but he was identified as soon as he got out and separated. At the back, on the big green grass, you had the male over there. You had the females there. He was identified as the um, one of the terrorists. So he was taken to one side, handcuffed, and looked after over there. And it was all, it was all done regimental. This yeah. is what was supposed to happen. That's where they found him out the back. But once he was out the back, um, he'd escaped basically, but he was arrested. Immediately? Immediately. Okay. Yeah. So he's pretended to be a hostage, slip out the back of everyone, yeah. try to do the Houdini, but obviously you guys have got him, cuffed him up and gone, right. Yeah. Okay. And then they are lined up and then everybody's accounted for, um, you know, by the teams out the back that are with them. There's a reserve team. A hostage reception team from the from our guys. Their job was to do exactly that, and that's what they did. Yeah. So everybody was accounted for in more ways than one. Some mm. inside the building, <clears throat> some outside the building, and that's what happened. Mm. How many hostages did you say were rescued? It started off with twenty five. Yeah. Some got out because of medical problems and pulling the wool a little bit over the eyes of the terrorists. Um, on that day, there was 19 left when we went in and 19 came out. Brilliant. That's amazing. Yeah. What was your movements after this? Did you get recognition or was it all kept under wraps for many years? What, what year did it all this sort of come about where you got the recognition of this story? Um, no, people knew about the story. No, but actually the people behind the story. So if it's 1980, when were you recognised, do you think... Roughly, what sort of year were you recognised when you could come and say, obviously, we're in a world now where there's podcasting, there's YouTube, there's oh, writing my, books. When were you, when were you, what year was it when you could mine, actually speak up? Mine was probably 1993, just as after I got out. Okay. Um, I was asked to do a documentary called SAS The Soldier Story. Yeah. And a few of the guys that were involved, they were out at the same time or just before, just after. And that's really from 1993. It's been recycled into different areas, you know. And um, from that day to this, which is what, 30 years, I suppose. 30 years, isn't it? Yeah. So, but we waited till we got out, out the regiment. Was there any was there any part of you that didn't want to speak up in the sort of protecting the SAS? No one really spoke about it. It was kind of got, was it seen frowned upon for someone to actually speak up? Uh, well, it's always frowned upon in them days, but because of what happened, you know, the senior officers uh, were coming and going. They were allowed to tell their story, but all the guys at that time. You're saying the police officers were allowed to tell the story? No, no. The, the officers in the SS? Okay. Uh, Officers and stuff have been doing books yeah. and, and before before the siege. Yeah. Um, so after the siege, it was just a very, it, it was a story that people wanted. So different people were approached to do maybe different documentaries and stuff like that. Um, but in those days, it was frowned upon by some but it's always been maybe a little bit of double standards. Yeah. Okay for somebody, but not okay for another person. 
happens in all walks of life. Um, so it was only frowned upon by some. I, I put it down at, at the time as jealousy because there was nothing, there's no information given away, you yeah. know. It was watched on TV, yeah, 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 you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you put it into perspective. It wasn't something that was done behind closed doors. Mm. It was there mm. for all to see. All it is, Rusty, what did you do on the siege? Yeah. Um, John Mack, John, what did you do on the siege? Uh, you know, it, 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 nothing, nothing dramatic. There's no top secret, nothing given away. Mm. But there wasn't anything to <clears> give away. <throat> so... Um, it, it just made us a bit bitter at the time because nowadays you see what they're allowed to get away with. Yeah. Give me an example of what they can get away with nowadays. Well, all, all these, um, you know, the shows on TV and yeah. Channel 4. And, well, SAS, uh, Who Dares Win. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all that type of stuff. But nobody seems to frown on anything to do with that. Mm. But in my day, you said a word, you know, a few words. They didn't yeah. like it too much. Yeah. But now they have to go a little bit because social media. Yeah. Now, I've never given anything away and I never talk about current uh, ops and stuff that the regiment do. Mm. I know a bit about it because I've got friends. But the fact is, you'll never hear me comment because that could actually maybe put somebody at risk. Yeah. And you'll never ever find anything off me talking about current yeah. or stuff I wasn't involved in. Mm. And the stuff I was involved in, the Falklands and things like that, mm. I'll talk about because I was involved in it. Yeah. And I put my life on the line for the country. Yeah. So I don't have any issues with that. You know, and and I've always been the same. You can't you can stop people, but I just feel that you can talk about stuff but I've never ever been accused, and never will be, about putting other people at risk yeah. or future operations at risk. Mm. It's never happened, and it never will from me. Mm. Um, but that's why I could do books. And what I liked about it, when we were chatting before this, you say in your book, Go, 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 yeah, and your other book, The Regiment, 15 Years in the SAS. Yeah, These are really powerful books. And what I liked what you said, first thing you said to me was, have a read of those, Dodge. They're non-fictional. Yeah, and I want to do a third. But how important is that, the non-fictional bit? Like This is whatever went on. You've just gone, bam, it's in that book. It's non-fiction. Yeah. And that's non-fiction. They're yeah. both an audio as well. Yeah. Audio books yeah. all over the place where you get your audio yeah. books from. Um, so once again, you know, go, go, go. What happened to that one when they read it? What it's, year did this one come out then? It the go -go? came out... 2010 for the 30th anniversary of the siege. Yeah. That's when Go Go came out. But if you look at the front, you'll see Jamie Bell, the actor on there. Yes. Right. He's a famous Billy Elliot. Yeah. He's um, the one who did the movie around the six day siege with which you were involved in. Yeah. Yeah. And they read the book and they decided that they wanted to do a film, not just about Rusty Furman, even though I'm in it. And Jamie Bell plays me in the film. Does he? Yeah, he does. He oh, plays wow. Rusty Furman in the film. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. But that's not, that wasn't the idea. The idea was having read that, it's like anything. Can you put everybody in the film Zulu? Mm. Mm. You know, where are you going to get them from? <laughs> but 
what they wanted to do is a camaraderie bit of what happened. So they picked it. I'm the guy with no gloves on. Yep. The only guy on the stage with no gloves. Mm. Right. Did so, you forget? Did you forget the gloves? I, I left them watching the snooker. <laughs> I yeah, I put them on the snooker table. And put then you got there. the call, and then yeah. you just like straight in. Yeah, because I used to put my gloves down my body armor. Yeah. But I put them on the table, and then we got the call. I left them on the table. That's how that started. But yeah. interestingly enough, when they read the book, that's what they wanted, and that's how they devised the film, Six Days. Right. I just became an advisor, but some of the guys I introduced the film crew to, the producer, sorry, the screen script writer mm. in Hereford, they told their stories. Um, I told my story. They'd read the book, and they made the film Six Days. It's on Netflix. Mm. Uh, number six mm. days. It's on Netflix. So that's how that happened. But it's taken, <laughs> it's taken um, since the siege of 30. That came out in 2017. What the so, movie did? Yeah. Wow. So it's on, and, and, and as I say, it's out. Um, and the books are both on Audible. Brilliant. Um, and the other one is from when I, when I was born, basically. So this is the regiment, I, this is your world, this is you. Until I left the SAS yes. in 1992. Yeah. I want, I've got a third book, which I could do. Um, Have you got another book in you? Oh, trust me. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. I would definitely have. Have you got a name for it? Have you got I any have. names you're throwing around in your I, mind? No, I've, got, I've got, yeah, I have. Um, I can't do anything with that, but it's not like that. It's something else. Give me an example. Um, rules. Okay. Rules. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Um, and I've got the chapters listed out, but whether I do it exactly that way or not, just up, just uh, at the moment it's a time thing. Yeah. It wouldn't take me long to do it. I can tell you that mm. because you know I've got I've got diaries and everything. So fascinating, amazing. But this is 1980. You left in early. Sorry, 1980. You left in the early 90s. What other missions did you do after this mission that really resonates with you? Um, well, some of the earlier jobs were quite, uh, it, they call it the circuit. Mm. It, it's a follow on from the SAS. Guys are going out every year, if you can imagine. To where? Out of the regiment. Yeah, okay, leaving. Yeah, yeah leaving. Okay. So they've done their time. Uh, maybe um, some have been asked to leave. Some have done the time. Why would they be asked to leave? Because sometimes you lose something and you you, you haven't met the benchmark. Right, okay. So um, they call it RTU, return to unit. But that that that's been there forever and a day. It's, I don't know if it still happens, but yeah. You know. But that's just that. Then they they go out and they go. Oh, what am I going to do? Yeah. Well, there's a circuit out there. It's all types of security work for big security mm. firms, small security firms, everywhere in the world. Security, you know, I've been all over the place. Yeah. What, 120 countries? I don't know. Have you done 120 countries? Probably in my lifetime. Have you? Yeah. There's like 195 countries in the world and you've yeah. done two thirds, like, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I've, I've done an awful lot. Mm. Um, so... Is there one country that stands out that you go, oh, that's a real dangerous place? Yeah, yeah. there's a few. Um, Algeria is one. When I was working on the oil rigs, I designed an oil rig. 
funny enough, two of us, me and a, um, the, the manager. So we had to go out into the middle of the deserts of Algeria, 40 degrees uh, lunchtime, nice, and find this little peg in the ground. That was the centre of the oil rig. But there's bodies all around, but we weren't armed. Why were you armed? <laughs> because we're Brits. Right. <laughs> Um, I, I didn't say I couldn't get my hand on something sure. if I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying is I wasn't armed. Yeah. But then we built the whole rig, a, a huge drilling rig with um, a runway and everything, and I helped. I'd never done that before in my life, but I helped put the security in place for that. And then we ended up getting some soldiers to come with us, um, 40 of them, I think, at the time, all armed. So it's nothing like having armed people around you, but you're unarmed. Yeah. You know, the first thing you think is, if I want a weapon, where am I going to get it from? Yeah. Ah, I know where I'm going to get yeah. it from. Yeah. Well, all that type of stuff. So there's, there's quite a few places. Mm. I mean, I've had some hairy, hairy moments. Where's the, where would you say is your most scariest moment? Scariest moment? Scariest, when you thought, oh, shit, I could lose my life here. Um, When you've got time to think about it, I would say the operation we were going to do in the Falkland Islands, Operation Mikado. Tell me about Operation Mikado. Um, well, the Falkland Island conflict was going on um, in 1982 when we got the call back in Hereford that we were going to be involved in it. Um, operation Mikado basically, B Squadron again, um, we were sent to the Ascension Islands to train for a specific mission. What islands were you sent to? Ascension. Where's that? Oh, <laughs> it's way down south of Africa, in between the Falkland Islands and Brit Britain. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a volcanic it's a vo volcanic island with a big American presence on there, big yeah. runway. It's officially got the worst golf course in the world. <laughs> In the Guinness Book of Records, right? yeah, volcanic. Yeah. We took the motorbikes over it and improved it. Yeah, yeah. so it's a yeah. Um, so we went there to do all the training to do attack mainland Argentina. Yeah, um, <laughs> with two C one thirties, which are lumberings aircraft that you parachute out. of. But the idea was so you flew so C one thirty you flew from Great Britain over to. Give an example of when you were on the C one thirties. No, they they were going to be used on the operation. Right. Okay. Yeah. From, okay. From Ascension Islands because you'd have to flying to Argentina you'd have to refuel in there maybe two or three times. Right, okay. Um, but we had no cover. There was no fighter cover or anything. Okay. Just two C one thirties. You know. Um, so half a squadron in each, and the idea was to land right in the middle of the airfield in Argentina, Punta Gorda, and then the damage that had been done had been done by Exocet missiles. Remember the guards uh, they lost uh, a lot of lives on Sir Galahad. Mm. I think it was Sir Galahad. Um, so Maggie Thatcher again, was trying to cover where are these Exocet missiles that are left, there was three of them, supplied by France, yeah, to Argentina. They were supplied by France? <laughs> Exocet missiles. Wow. 
And then they had the super etendards, which flew. And they were the ones that caused the damage um, to our troops. Well, the idea was that we would go into there and find those Exocet missiles, destroy them, blow up all the aircraft on the that could fly them, and kill all the pilots. That was a mission. Um, that mission was aborted um, when not long after, if I'm correcting, not long after we lost 19 guys in that one helicopter crash in the South Atlantic. What, lost 19 SAS guys? Yeah. Yeah, they were cross-decking on two helicopters. Cross-decking is being passed across. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but officially, you know, what happened there, there's two or three, I won't say what they are, but there's two or three things happened or could have happened, but I've never heard the come clean what exactly it was. Suffice to say that the helicopter went down straight into the South Atlantic and we lost 19 guys oh, all in one go. So 19, 19 mates gone like that? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was the end of that. Um, so that happened. Then there was a bit of a reshuffle um, because you've got to replace the guys and the mission to Argentina was called off um, probably again by Mrs. Thatcher, who'd have the final say. So I'm not quite, there's a little bit there that's there's sketchy, a grey area, is there? But we yeah. called it Operation Certain Death. Yeah. Because had we landed on the airfield and even had a chance of finding this stuff with all those Marines around it in the airfield, yeah. we then would have had to escape and evade from Argentina over the hills, mountains into Chile. And Pinochet, if you remember, was good pals with Thatcher. And Pinochet was who? He was the president of, of Chile. Right. But Maggie Thatcher and him got on okay. Mm. So we had a safe haven. Mm. If we could have made it there, we could have been picked up and rescued. Yeah. But the chances are it would never have happened. It's surrounded, you know, and let's be honest, you do your best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, and that was a lot of thinking about how that was going to happen. But um, it's not scary, you know, but at the same time, you'd be a mug not to think, you know, yeah. there's a lot of what ifs about this yeah. one. Yeah. Just, That's probably one of them. Mm, just go, just going back there, you said you lost 19 men. How many, how many SAS were on that operation, roughly? Um, th that wasn't part of my operation, no. by the way. Okay. That was another squadron um, that were cross-decking. That wasn't our squadron yeah. at all. <clears throat> so whatever operation they were on, I don't know. Yeah. I know the names of them, um, but the, the guys that were on there, I think I knew it, all of them. Um, so when that actually happened... It was have to be, you know, you're, you're thousands of miles from, yeah. you know, you have to make another plan yeah. or have a plan in place. And that, that's that's what happened. Um, but for us, it was Operation Certain Death. <laughs> yeah. Just another, Is that what it was called or do you boys call it that? Yeah, that's what we call yeah, it. Yeah, Jesus. Well, we were the ones, flying, you know, 
trying to rehearse what we were going to do. And, uh, you know, don't forget the best maps we had in them days were the likes of AA maps. Mm. There was no, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Argentina, Chile. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, it seems mad to think of it like that, but it, well, it, it, it was, yeah. We have a sense of humour. Yeah. But I always remember the maps, like, you know, I'm better off with our maps yeah. <laughs> and just take potluck. Yeah. yeah. I want to know about cross-decking. What What is actually cross-decking? Why were they cross-decking? And also, how did that <clears throat> chopper go down? Well, that's a question I can't give you an answer fully to, but cross-decking just means that maybe they're going onto a, a different boat, so they have to jump on a helicopter to, right. to go across. Um, um, you know, there, there was talks of it, of it being maybe um, a bird strike in the engine. There was talk of it being overweight, because um, we carry huge amounts of kit yeah. and weapons and ammunition. Um, so it could have been any of that, a combination of that, but it happened. And that's how you cross deck, jump on there, take them to there. There's no other way of doing it. Yeah. Um, but suffice to say that it happened and um, they went to the, to the bottom. What was your, what was your movements? I want to. I want you to just explain to the listeners about the Falklands, breaking it down in real simple terms. Yeah. Why we were, why we were out there, why you guys were out there, and what you actually did in your mission. Well, every, the thing is, the, the reason we were there is because what happened in the early stages, you know, when they took it over. Well, it's never been Argentinian, so all of a sudden they're invading our territory. Mm. And I think there was a problem with, um, what's his name? The president of Argentina at the time. He'll come to me. Mm. There was a problem at home. And the easiest way to get rid of them problems is to start a fight. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it sounded like that's what it was. And what was the problem back at home in 82, back in England, for us to go and try to put the attention on over there? Well, I think it was Maggie Thatcher just saying, you know, that's ours. Yeah. And we want it back. Yeah. If they'd given it back, it would never have happened. It's even though even though that bit of land there was so close to Argentina, but the British owned it. But it's ours. Yeah. And the, the Falkland Islanders want to stay British. Yeah. You know, there's nothing there that's... Doesn't it's ours. Yeah, I agree. You know, yeah. or it's probably got a few minerals there as well. Yeah. Um, but it's ours. You can't just come and take it. Mm. You know, so that happened. Um and then we lost, was it the Atlantic conveyor? And then there's a bit of tip for tat. Then while they, well, that was happening, she put a task force together with such and such. And, and that was all being shipped down there, you know, and, and then there was the, the battles on the island there, you know, goose green and all that. As time went on, um, all this stuff was happening, but we were away from there. We never got on there. Yeah. We finally got on to having been, first of all, going to attack Argentina mainland. We got on there eventually with a day or two before the surrender. Um, but to shuffle people around out there, people might not understand. It's not like just go and get a bus down the road mm. or a train. Mm. 
you've got to get X number of bodies from A to B. And when they get there, they've got to be able to do something. Yeah. Well, that was, it's just a slow process down there because of the distances involved. Um, so really, when the surrender came at the end, June, June the 14th, 1982 was a surrender, uh, you know, on the Falkland Islands. Um, and when that was done, we were actually there at the surrender but it was another loss of life, which arguably never needed to happen. Yeah. But it did. In politics, yet again. Mm. But it's not the politicians that are losing family, it's the soldiers. Agree. You know, so you have to look at it two ways. But they don't care. Mm. You know, they just carry on. How long was this fighting going on for before the surrender happened? Well, it started, I think it was, I think it was April to June. I wasn't there in the early part because we were there for a specific operation that would be assisting this. Yes. One, we couldn't let these fly out and take our troops out. Yeah. Uh, with the, as I've mentioned, the Exocet missiles yeah. and the Super Etendards that flew them. But I've, I've actually spoken to the guy in charge of those pilots that we were going to kill. You've spoken to him, have you? Oh, yeah, I'm in contact with him. Okay. Yeah. What's he, what was he saying? Um, How did he explain it? He's. He, I, I watched some pictures with him. I've got pictures with him. Um, That's pretty, just hold that thought. That's pretty special, right? Yeah. But at the same time, yeah. Um, what's his name? Uh, I've got, I met one of the guys who ground crew who used to fix all the aircraft for them. Yep. I met him in England 18 months ago. And he speaks English. Mm. He's read the book. And that's how he got in contact with me because he was fixing the very planes <laughs> that we were going to have to destroy. Yeah. yeah. And he's back in Argentina, Julio, that's yeah, his name, Julio. Yeah. He's back out in Argentina now. He's coming back over to the UK. And the guy in charge of the pilots, his daughter's in the UK and married and lives here. Really? Yeah. So. How do you feel about that? Looking back now, this all went on. How do you feel when you met these couple of people? It's a war mm. at the time. You know, a conflict. Is it a war? Conflict. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but suffice to say that it didn't happen. And they're both very nice people, mm -hmm. by the way. Um, speak good mm -hmm. English, the pair of them. How old, roughly, in their 70s? 60s, oh, 70s? The, yeah, the one, in, um, <clears throat> the one in charge of the pilots is probably my age. Mm -hmm. And the one in charge... I was used to do the ground crew work on the on the um, actual aircraft. He's probably he's probably sixties. Okay. Yeah. And what was that feeling like meeting them and having a chat? Well, I've had a chat. I've met the pilot. Mm. Sorry if I misled mm. you there. I've spoken to him on Zoom. Yeah. Um, because I might have needed some information from him. 
And the other one I've met, and he just likes to have a beer with you. And he's just, he's another guy, but he loves England. Yeah, brilliant. I don't know why, it must be really bad over in Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> but you can have my place. <laughs> How many men did we lose roughly, do you think? In the Falklands? Yeah. There's a couple of hundred, I think. Was it? I, I'm, I'm not very good at yeah, numbers. That's not, yeah, but roughly. But yeah, we lost, we lost quite a few. And how big how big do you think our army was back then compared to what it is today? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um yeah, we've sadly shrunk, haven't we? Yeah. Um it's probably the smallest probably the smallest I've ever known, I'll be honest. Right. Um and the reason is now they want more they they make it small, right? Mm. And then they put those you must have seen the army adverts. Yeah. Get, my God, you know. Does it make you cringe when you see those it adverts? It does. I'd yeah. be off. Yeah. You know, never get me back in the army. Mm. But at that time, it, it, you know, it, it's just the whole thing is sad from what, you know, we were a power yeah. at one stage. Great Britain. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. Remember? Great it was Britain. great and you were proud to be here. Yeah, yeah I agree. But now it's like... You know what's happened to it? Yeah. Where's it going? Yeah. And and that's the sad part about it. it I think they've just put a new chief of staff in, haven't they? As of mm. yesterday, I think. But any of them got experience? That's my point. When we got a government and people putting people in place, have they got proper experience in business or military or what's going on in this country? That's the I, bit that baffles me. I don't think they're bothered. I think they've got to fit the bill. You do what you're told, and you've got a job. Mm. That's my opinion. What was your movement after 82 there, your movement from the next sort of 10 years while you were in the SAS? Um, just... Was there any big things that stand out in your mind? Um, not, 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 not really. We had our cycles, you know, I used to, you have a cycle in the, that's, that used to be in there years ago, that you have four squadrons, and four squadrons would rotate six months on. Yeah, okay. Maybe op operations, six months there, six months there. So you could have that every two years, you'd come back. Every 18 months, you'd be back on the counter-terrorist team. Yeah. So to give you some idea, you know, I did a lot of things. Um, but that would be a two-year cycle back mm. then. As I said, I don't talk about today um, and what they do now. But... The fact is, that's what we did. Mm. So, you know, you qualified in certain certain things, you yeah. know, demolitions, mm. paramedics, um, um, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I ended up training the bodyguards for two years. I had a, two of us were taken off. Your job for the next two years is training all the bodyguards that come through, um, be it... Um, SAS or be it royalty protection. I used to teach royalty them. protection. Yeah. yeah. Have you protected royalty? I've trained their royalty protection guys. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was never in the police, mm. but in those days, you used to have royalty protection, diplomatic protection. Yeah. Cost cutting. Yeah. Throwing it all together yeah. these days. Um, yeah. But in my day, uh, royalty protection. Yeah. I used to train the bodyguards. Mm. You say you've done 120 countries. How many do you reckon you did within the military versus how many you did out of the military? Um, in the military, 
maybe 40. Okay. Yeah. So when you left the military, what made you want to leave the SAS in because the 90s? My time was up. Okay. Do they just give you a certain amount of time, do they, to get no. a pension? Or how does it work? Yeah. Well, as I say, then I was, I wanted to go out, <laughs> but then I'd signed on for 22 years, right? So you don't count the first two years of boy service. Mm. You're not a man, apparently, until yeah. you're 18. Mm. So from 18, 22, you're age 40. Yeah. Um, and that's how they work. They they worked it. Then was forty would be twenty two years. Yeah. <clears throat> at at age forty, I was given a two year extension. That was really to prepare myself to go out into civic civic world. Yeah. So um, I spent two years with the um, up in Birmingham with the the two three SAS the territorials. You know. And they get some experience off you as well. But at the same time, you can do courses. You know, I did the um, safety management, health and safety at work, all that really boring stuff. Yeah. But in those days, it was coming out with my security background. And mm. if I could get the diploma, which I did, the mm. NEBS diploma, then you've got two strings to yeah. your bow. Yeah. That's what I did. Um, down at Plymouth um, College of Further Education. Mm. So I went down there and did that. So I was preparing to come out. And at age 42, I came out. Mm. What was it like coming out into Civvy Street after being told to eat, go there, be there, do this, train <laughs> then, eat then? Da, 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 da. What was it like coming into the real world? I, I was okay with it. Yeah. Some people can't take it. Yeah. But I had, no, I had no issues with that. After my time, I was ready to come out. Yeah. Um, it was 27 years altogether, if you... So it's a long time, but um, when you look back on it, you think, Christ, where did that go? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a third of your life. Yeah, I agree. Do you know when people are coming out these days, um, back when you were there, there was no internet when you came out. There was no, no. social media. No. You couldn't say, how's your mental health? No. What have you got PTSD? What was the attitude back then? Was it like, strap a pair and get on with it, carry on with life? Or was there any help? You never get help. Yeah. And you walk out that door, you have a medical. Um, to, you, you go in A1 fit, what do you come out as? Probably not A1 fit. Mm. <laughs> I mm. don't know anybody who's come out A1 fit. Yeah. I haven't spent a long time. You know, I've got to wear hearing aids at times. Um, you know, it, it's just something that happens in the military. Because health and safety at work never came in till 1974. Mm. Well, I was in the army at 65 in the artillery. Mm. I had nothing on my ears to protect me. So there, there is a, a pension in place on top of your army pension. Um, I, I don't know what it is now, but they give you a percentage and that equates to whatever, yeah. money-wise. And then... You're off, you know, so you're just a number. So as soon as you leave the military, it's like, bam, Rusty, cheers for your time, mate. Off skis, next one in. Yeah. There was no, like, love afterwards saying, mate, you did a great job for us, thanks, mate. None no, of that. You don't get any of that. Was there any, when you talk about your pension, have you still got your pension today? Yeah. Is, does that pay you enough to live a lifestyle you want to live at the age you're at? <laughs> 
No, but unfortunately, the rock stars' <laughs> pensions are probably better. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's something. Um, and it depends how long you do, what pension you get. Mm. Not everybody gets the same. Everyone gets the same? Well, no, they don't. No, no okay. they don't. Did you no. get the one of the better pensions? No, I, I got I got exactly um, what it was said. What I should have got, um, which is it's quite handy. You've got to say because, but at the same time, when you look at some of the civilian jobs and their pensions, even if you get fired, you know they're still on million pound pensions, aren't they? Mm. Um, so when you look at it that oh, way, oh, I see what you mean. You, you in a job, I mean? okay, in a corporate job, you get yeah. da, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah. But we go out there and are told what to do, mm. uh, get on with it, and then when you come back and finish, you've got whatever's on the line for you. Mm. That's it. Where were you on the day of nine eleven? And 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 do you feel do you feel that was an inside job? Yeah, I do. Um, and I will tell you exactly where I was. I watched it in the gymnasium in Hereford on the screens. With the running machines and it came up on the screen there um it was almost like you know um hard to take in yeah but um i still think that it was an inside job i do um <laughs> But suffice to say, they still lost a lot of bodies, you know. What do you mean by it's an inside job? Well, I, I think it was done from within for, for, for a reason. Uh, it's only my assumption, but I've spoken to some people that actually totally agree with what happened. And at some stage, you might think it's nuts, the word hologram comes into the equation there. I'm still trying to get some stuff on that because that could be very useful for me. But actually, there's a lot of people I know that think it was an inside job. Wow. Probably CIA. Why? Why not? But why? It's a hard question. It's a hard question to answer because I haven't got the full facts. But the people I deal with are very, very that way inclined. Yeah. And one day it'll come out, whatever happened. That's just my opinion. Yeah. You've asked me. Mm. Um, and what I know about it is, well, you know, it's exactly what I think. Yeah. And I haven't seen anything or heard anything that would sway me against that, apart from media stuff. Yeah. That's it. But I don't listen to the media. Mm, nor do I. No. Don't watch the news. No. Don't listen to anything. I watch news because mm. I like to see the different lies on the channels. Mm. That's why I the like The different lies. It. Oh, I see. Oh, okay, they're, yeah. They're, yeah, they're all the same subject. Yeah. Oh, same subject. But it, it's not the same news. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, and the best one, that, in my opinion, they took off RTL. Yeah. When they took RTL off the Russian, that was good news. Mm. But they took it off for what reason? 
as well as I do. What was your world like after 9-11? Did you get jobs? You, you know, you said you'd done 40 countries prior coming out and you've done another 80 countries on top. How were you doing all these 80 countries? What were you doing? Um, I was working mainly in security, but sometimes um, I was running security for an American company and they used to do events all over the world. I would sit down and count exactly what countries I've been to. But they would come to Europe and do 10 different countries, fly in, do an event next day. And it, it wouldn't be the likes of go to Italy and do an event. You go there, do an event, fly over to France, then go back the next day to Belgium or Holland, and then back to Italy. It wouldn't do, and it, but only that, when I started that, I had the European only, London in Europe. But the guy I worked for, Mark, he liked the team I put together. So he then gave me the pack rim, as they call it, Pacific Rim. Mm. You know, Japan, um, South Korea. Oh, wow. All, all of them type of countries out there. But then he actually gave us, he said, well, you might as well come to the States with all my security guards. So we had a bit of time around the States and stuff like that. So the, the, the country's built up. I've been to a lot of countries when I was young. But when I went to all these on top of that, and all the countries you know of, um, more than once, by the way, mm. you know, Russia, um, Japan, all of, the, all of the, China, yeah, you know, uh, there's not many I haven't done. Um, uh, you know, all the ones in Africa. Mm. Give me some examples of ones in Africa you've been to. Um, Ghana, mm. the Ghanaian uh, diamond mines used to work there. The diamond mine consultant. You were a diamond mine consultant yeah. in Ghana. Yeah, Are you? yeah, seventy miles, um, seventy miles from Accra, the capital. Uh, but the good news is, because I was a keen footballer, I took my coaching books over there for whatever downtime I had. The um, <laughs> the Diamond All-Stars football team were their first division. Yeah. Well, they're the guys who worked in the diamond mine, mm. of which I was the only white security with 1,400 of their guys, right? Imagine yourself <laughs> in the middle of a car. <laughs> yeah. No radio, no telephone, okay? I helped coach their Diamond All-Stars team. They were in the first division yeah. in Ghana. So I, I got on with them very well. First of all, I give them my coaching manuals. Mm. And then, and then um, I used to go down there and when they were training two or three times a week on site, they'd run home an hour. They didn't have any transport. Yeah. They'd run home. They'd come in for training, they'd run back. And I got on very well with them all. So I made the best of what I could to help me find out what I needed to find out. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, of course. So uh, that's the type of person I was. I probably still am. Yeah. Because one, it was a bit of fun. Mm. Two, I was surrounded <laughs> being the only white guy there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did they? Did you have respect from day one? Did they know you were ex SAS? Was there a respect? No, no, okay. No, they didn't. But the guy I was working with there, 
the head of them all. Yeah. He knew. Okay. Because I was working for a London-based security company. Yeah. Uh, and I went out with the guy to start with to be shown the ropes of how you find out about diamonds and stuff. Very interesting. Um, what does a diamond mine look like? It's, uh, and are you seeing it, diamonds it, every day? How, how are they no, people not pocketing them and going, I'll have a peek? No, you do, it doesn't work like no. that. What happens is pick the one in, they're mainly industrial diamonds, okay? But when it rains, pisses down. Yeah. The diamonds can be at the top. Yeah. Now, they're not big, they're not flush diamonds, mm. but they used to have the illegal diamond miners, kids, and used to try and see one of them for yeah. them. It was oh, worth 10 years, you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they had, um, they had their own team with pick elves and stuff, yeah. um, chasing these guys all the time. My job was actually to, there was a problem with the diamonds and the quality. They thought that somebody was Hmm. replacing stuff with good for bad, if hmm. you like. And of course, the quality was coming down. Hmm. So my couple of trips out there with a, a swap with a, another guy that I swapped back to back with, um, it, it's quite funny because the, you say, what does it look like? Well, imagine a big open of just earth. Yeah. Right. It's all been brought in. Right, because somewhere in there is diamonds, mm. okay? And they have conveyor belts covered in grease, you know, like normal grease. Yeah. Mm. And they throw this mud on there. To take the mud away? Yeah. Okay. And then it goes around the system over here. Now, when that stuff comes through, somewhere in there is going to be some diamonds. Nobody knows how many. But once it's gone around the system, Specific gravity of a diamond, I think, is something like seven times a stone or something yeah, like okay. that. So these stick mm. and they get taken off and they get put into a bowl. And out of all those thousands of tons of earth, you might only get a bowl. Yeah. You know, very small mm. with what appear to be diamonds. So they, they do that, and these guys are working nonstop. So all that earth, the rest of the earth gets turfed out, but all that earth might only produce a little mm. amount of diamonds. Once it's taken from there, it's taken to a conch house, a concentration house. Yeah. And in there, you've got guys sat behind with, you know, gloves, mm. like, like um, chopsticks. Yeah. What? The diamonds are in there. Checking them all out, yeah. And then they've got these gloves. You can't get, you, you can't put your hands in and steal. And what they're doing is they're sorting them and putting them into different color, cut, and whatever. Yeah. And and they're doing that all the time. And when you're watching them, you you think, well, they can't possibly be nicking any, whether they can or not. Yeah. I was like, yeah. You know, <laughs> Um, so you, you <laughs> two for me, one for you. Yeah, two. one for you, one for <laughs> yeah. me. And then at the end, at the end of the day, all the diamonds that might be in two or three different piles, they're then put into boxes and then put into the safe. Mm. Right? Big, big, huge safe. <clears throat> so they can't touch them. However, they lock it up at night. <laughs> right. So what happens when you finish... 
and go. Don't forget, I locked myself in my room every night. I never went out anywhere apart from the little sports club yeah. where they would be training. Um, and I locked myself in my room for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but this stuff would then be sorted and put away. The next day, the same thing. Next day, the same thing and so on. So by the end of the week, you have to go 70 miles to make a report back to the UK mm. um, because Accra was the closest place. But on site, I had two diamond mine valuers, both Russian, no, Russian and Canadian. They, their job was to value the diamonds. Yeah. So if I suspected anything, I would probably suspect them. <laughs> <clears throat> but it was quite fun, yeah. apart from being a bit hairy at times. Mm. Because... Um, well, you're in Ghana, white guy by himself. Yeah. Not 14, carrying. 14, no, 1,400, 1400 um, employees. Yeah. And that's... <laughs> And that was the, that's probably still there today. The Diamond All Stars football team. Yeah. I don't know. Amazing. But it was because I got on well with them. Mm. I didn't have any issues there. Mm. Was there any hairy moments for you leaving the SAS in civilian life, insecurity in different parts of Africa or wherever you've been in Europe? Was there any moments that spring to mind? Um, well, there's quite a few because I, I, I mean, I've been all over Russia. Have you? Yeah, you know. I've, I used to fly into Russia, and you fly into Moscow, right? You then fly across to Vladivostok, which is right next to Japan. Yeah. Fly down to Novosibirsk. Fly up to Ekaterinburg. Fly over to St. Petersburg. Back to Moscow. <laughs> St. Petersburg and Vladivostok have got 11 hours time zone difference in the same country. My God. Right, and I used to do that. Siberia, okay, that's quite a hairy place because I'd have the militia to look after me, let alone look after the clients. The I militia, had. yeah, the guys in all the camouflage kit. And yeah, everything. you know, I wasn't allowed to be armed, but I was security for the people I was with. But I had to put my trust in the security that yeah. had been supplied for me to look after it. Yeah, they got paid off at the end. Yeah. But there's nothing like being armed yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that was, you have a look at that trip I've just told you about. Yeah. That's thousands and thousands of miles in the same country with 11 different time zones, east to west. Right? What were you doing there? Looking after who? Yeah, Americans mainly. Really? Yeah, because they don't travel too well. And why were you not allowed to carry? Because it's Russia. Okay. But the, the, the nothing. The, let me just say that the word mafia springs to mind yeah. at times. Right? They're all in the picture. Somebody's paying these people. Yeah. Not me. To make sure their trips go well. So they come back again yeah. and get paid again. Okay. If you think about it that way, yeah. for them, it's in their interest to make sure. That it all you works. Know, you just sit there. Yeah. Four o'clock in the morning, I can tell you now, down in Siberia, the aircraft come in, lands at four o'clock in the morning. You go into the private waiting room, which is no bigger than this, by the way. Mm. Go in there. Bottle of vodka. <laughs> right. 
bottle of vodka, freezing cold. Yeah. Might be three or four of us. Yeah. I'll have a drink. So what guys looking after me with weapons? Yeah. If you don't drink, they don't trust you. Yeah. This. Yeah. There yeah, you yeah. Go. Disrespect, right. isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the first to have a drink out of that bottle. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> seriously, and the bottle is there. Generally, would be drunk anyway. Yeah. And then you'd be in their hands till you leave. Um, and that's Novosibirsk. And then the Ketterenberg is the next one up. And I know it inside out. Yeah. Um, and then up to St. Petersburg, back to Moscow and fly out from Moscow. Um, so. So you've been you had been employed by the Russian as by the Americans to go round to do this trip I, I, as they were doing business deals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And while they were doing that in these different countries, uh, sorry, these different um, cities, yeah. um, <clears throat> each one's different as you can well imagine from what I've just said. Mm. But the, it's it's a vast vast area. You know, I used to have a multi entry visa. I was there that many times. <clears throat> I'd love to know how many air miles you've done. Um, <laughs> well, I was just speaking the other day <laughs> to, to Sue. I, when I finished, I had just under a million BA air miles alone. Yeah. Um, so that's quite a lot. Mm. Um, of course, tickets were paid for anyway. Mm. So. How many years were you doing this for? The security work, roughly. I started with, no, no, I started in 92. Mm. But when I met Mark from the States and worked for him, I did that up until the year before 9-11. Okay. Um, so you had a good nine, ten year stint at it. Yeah. Yeah. What was but your I, movements after that? What were your movements over the last, what have your movements been since roughly the millennium to where we are today, 2024? Um, well, I've, I've still been in, you know, in security. Um, I let my, I let my badge run out in 2015. Um, so I really stopped doing what I was doing at the time. So um, I didn't bother renewing my badge 2015. So fact, I've still got it in my pocket, actually. Mm. So look, you got <laughs> um, it there. Yeah. Um, I let it run out in 2015. And the reason was, after after a bit of time, Hello. after a bit of time, um, God, when was that photo taken? What's that? When was your photo taken there? That would have probably been 2000. I did the very first SIA course in the country. Yeah. And it, and they picked a lot of our guys yep. down in Hereford to do that, mm. um, to get it all Signed, yeah. done. And for people coming, even nowadays, they're doing it. But we did the very first course down in Hereford. What involvement do you have with the SAS today? What involvement do you have with charities? What involvement do you have with injured soldiers and people losing limbs and what have you? Um, well, I'm a patron of three charities. Victoria Cross Trust, I'm a patron for them. A patron for Veteran 180 and a patron for, a patron for the Homeless Veterans Project up in Scotland. Now, I don't get paid for any of them. I do it unpaid. 
So I'm a patron for them. And I used to be with just down the road here, yeah. Pilgrim Bandits. Pilgrim's Bandits, yeah. Yeah, I used to be an ambassador. Matt Hellier. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, lovely a friend bloke. Of mine. Yeah, yeah, lovely man. He's um, been on the podcast. Yeah, I know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> so I've done, I was a patron for them for a few years. Um, not a patron, sorry, an ambassador for them. Yeah. So I did quite a bit on that side of it. And most of them have been to do with limbless. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are limbless. The homeless as well. And I've helped out <clears throat> quite a few. Um, and that's been really since 2014. Mm. Probably about a year before I let that run out. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I've been on the circuit with them um, doing all sorts of stuff. So, you know, I've done my bit to help out. Rusty, you have certainly lived an eventful life, which is this podcast is called. Yeah. Wow. I'm absolutely fascinated. What a great human being you are. <laughs> a word. No, no, but you are, though. To hear all this and listen, I, I, I believe there could be quite easily a part two here with more stories because I love these... I love these countries and because I hope you throw a few countries at you in your mind. I can see your mind going, here we go. I haven't brought yeah, that for a while. Yeah. I'll, I'll have a look exactly how many. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, but certainly, you know, if get another invite, you know. Fabulous. And just, just before we finish up here, Rusty, where can people find you these days? If they got a question for you or they open up a, a chat with you or they want to find your book and your audio. Well, the best place, obviously, is if you go straight to my website. Which is? www.rusty-firmin.com. Yeah. Um, it's just been updated. Um, and, of course, I haven't given up yet because we have uh, got more to do. And um, we're going to do it. Yeah, I've got no <laughs> doubt. Um, so... That's I just I can't find time to stop. Yeah. So, I, you know, I hope your listeners enjoy it. I'll certainly do another one. That'd be fabulous. There's another book. There's another. That's podcast. fabulous. Just before we finish up here, guys, anyone watching, listening to this, go, 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 is one of Rusty's books. Fabulous about the Iranian embassy siege, the true story, and then the regiment, fifteen years in the SAS, Rusty Furman. Definitely go and check it out. I'm looking forward to seeing your third book and what you're going to be doing with that. But I have to say, I've really, really enjoyed this. Love your honesty. Love what an eventful life you've lived. A proper hero. <laughs> we don't do heroes. We do legends. A legend. You are a proper legend. <laughs> Not legend. Yeah, legends. legends. But you are. Um, uh, thank great. you ever. Thank you ever so much for coming down here and taking the time out. No problem. I'd do it if I liked you. <laughs> You're a gentleman. Good man, Rusty. Thanks, Cheers, mate. Good man.